Today's episode of Setting the Edge is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash setting edge. That's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. I'm popping bottles tonight. Come do for a fight if you're ready. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles, baby. I'm popping bottles tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to episode 35 of Setting the Edge. I'm your host, Charles McDonald. You can find me on Twitter at 4Verts. Uh, Justice is not here today. He has scheduling conflict with class, but that's okay because I'm joined with three very special guests Harry Lyles Jr. and uh, Tyler Times of SB Nation and Michael Rose Ivy, uh, former Nebraska linebacker. Uh, we're going to talk about Charlottesville, what happened over the weekend. Tyler and uh, Harry wrote a fantastic article on the people surrounding Colin Kaepernick. We can get into the details of his protests and the activism that he did there. And Michael's going to share some of his own experiences with his and the protests at Nebraska and some of the backlash that he got from that. So first of all, I'll start with, with uh, Harry. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Uh, not a bad day here in Atlanta. So, you know, I'm, I'm out here living. I had some Chick-fil-A for dinner. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> Tyler? Burp. I mean, I mean, I'm good, man. Everything's good. It's, it's a nice day in D.C. It's not as trash as you see on TV, so it's fine. And Michael? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still in Lincoln, so uh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> How's Lincoln been with the... Uh... Like with the stuff that went went down this weekend, you know, I just try to stay inside. You know, what I, mean? I don't know what could break out out here. <laughs> I feel you. Uh, so, for those of you who have complained in the past about this podcast being not enough sports and too much politics, yeah, I'm sorry. This one, this episode is not for you. But with all the stuff that happened in Charlottesville, with the <coughs> you know uh, white supremacy protest and. Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job, and with the fantastic article that Harry and Tyler put together, I thought that it would be uh, just a good idea to have kind of this open forum vent session, as I would like to call it, uh, just about everything that's happened over the past year, I guess. And before we got on to the podcast, Harry and Michael and I, we were talking about uh, how it's funny that all the protesters this weekend and protesters is putting a nice spin on it. I would call them rioters and thugs, uh, classless thugs even. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've all been labeled as neo-Nazis, which is fair to a degree because some of them were, but that kind of feels like we're pushing the blame onto Germany at least, or at least the Nazi regime from the 40s, but there were Confederate flags there, there were American flags there, and it just felt weird that we were only focusing on the term Nazi. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, just for me, I mean, it, 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 it kind of felt like a continuation of just, um, you know, trying to bury our own problems. I mean, America, the United States of America has got a, a very dark history. Um, I know we like to, to spin that differently in our in our public and private schools. But, um, I mean, what we saw this past weekend was also a very, like, Confederate thing. Like, this, this has been bred in the United States for over 300 years. Um, and to and to leave it to just straight up Nazism is is kind of you know it's not taking 
I, I wouldn't say taking away from the black struggle, but it's like, you know, you're, you're kind of ignoring one very, very big side of this, um, you know, in a part of the country that has historically been Confederate, you know, it's, it's South, it's, it's racist. Um, and to ignore that, it seems, it seems irresponsible, um, at least in my opinion. I mean, at the same time, right. When, when we kind of think of Nazism, we think of something that is, we can normalize that in the way of the last year or so to think that's very European. We can think that's very uh, foreign based and not American. No, no, no. These are your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your fathers, your mothers, right? These are your Americans. This is racism as we've known it, uh, you know, Sunday through Sunday. So this is no different. You can be anti-Semitic and also be racist. You can be misogynistic and also be racist. Like you don't have to be one or two bad things when those can combine and conflate to be just bad humans that live in the United States. So. I don't want anyone to believe that this moment right now can be normalized into something different. I want you to believe that if you're black or if you're brown or even if you're Jewish, that this, especially more so, you know, if you're black or you're brown in this country, that this is just a Tuesday. <laughs> this, this is no different than what we've experienced, you know, for a very long time. It just happened to find a very popularized home under this new presidency. So to say it's Nazism, while, you know, definition based, that's fine. It's I think that would be doing a disservice to the American racism and the dream of the Confederacy that's living on right now in a place like Charlottesville. And even before you say, okay, Charlottesville, Charlottesville not, is not the place you think it is. I mean, it, it just ain't true. It just ain't true. You know what I mean? So it, I'd be hard pressed to call it Nazism. Oh yeah. I think it's definitely it's irresponsible. I think like he said, you kind of take away from uh, the full story of, you know, the, the struggle and the actual personal struggle that black people have faced is, which has been from, um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, things of that sort, um, as far, and also, you know, being in slavery and whatnot. Um, so you definitely, you definitely, you know, discrediting, um, a def a big part of history that, uh, black people have to go through. I mean, it's, that's just, it is what it is. And, like I said, it's just another way to kind of deflect and, you know, put it on to somebody else, onto another group. But at the end of the day, I mean, even history says, you know, the ideology behind Nazism came from America and the way they treated, um, you know, black and brown people. So um, there's definitely a correlation. But at the same time, you got to call it what it is. Also, it's a whole difference of Americans are going overseas and getting hands put up on them by Europeans who are like, I mean, if Americans are going overseas, there's an Associated Press story this week. And we're doing how Hitler signs. And right, got beat up. Pause up on them real quick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, like, if if Nazism is becoming a thing that even in Europe these people are being hung and and you know it's being immediately decried, but here we take a, a piece and fraction of that and we call it the Confederacy, and those folks can come off against Confederacy and become senators. There's a complete difference on how mm, we're right. these things. Mm. Yeah, and when you look at. Even the protest of what happened this weekend, there were American flags among the Confederate flags and the Nazi flags. And I, right. I think that that kind of brings in the whole scope of what Colin Kaepernick was protesting is that American flag does not stand for everybody that it encompasses. You know, it, it really only protects people at the top, white men to be uh, most you know, that that get the most guard underneath that flag. And what Colin Kaepernick was saying is this flag doesn't stand for me, so I don't stand for that flag. And I think that the notion of sitting down for the anthem, which in itself is getting angry at that, is not patriotism. It's more of a form of nationalism because your undying support for the United States goes ahead of 
the people living in, within the United States right. and how they feel. And you know, just to see the backlash that has come towards Colin Kaepernick, which isn't necess- as a black man is not very surprising, but to see how he's been completely blackballed from the NFL has been a little bit surprising to me, especially after we saw what the hell quarterback play that was this preseason. And uh, Tyler and Harry did a fantastic piece on the people that surrounded Colin Kaepernick and the people who protested with him. And what I wanted to talk to you guys about, first off, was when you got those uh, recounts from the people who were with Colin Kaepernick, how like, emotionally draining was that uh, listening to that as a, as a black reporter? Uh, I just I know for myself um, at one point I had to I had to call Tyler um, I think it was on a, on a Wednesday I had, I had spoken to uh, Colette Flanagan who is um, the founder of Mothers Against Police Brutality um, and her son Clinton Allen had been uh, killed by the Dallas police in 2013 um, and he had been shot seven times once in the back and um, it's it was it was eerie to me it was it was it was um, like sad just because she she recited that as if it had become a normal part of her day. Like it was not, not acceptable, but it was just something that it's like, it's, it's part of her life now. Like this is, this is it. I mean, and, and, and that was just, that was terrible for me. Um, just to, just to hear the, the, the normalization, um, I guess you could say in her voice and just her strength was, was so admirable. Um, and for her to turn this thing around and, and what she was able to do with uh, Colin Kaepernick's donation was was really great to see. And um, just, I mean, for me in this entire process, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit before we got here on the on the podcast. But um, the the intricacies that that he put into this thing was was quite impressive. And as for somebody as in myself that already had a respect and, and believed in what Colin Kaepernick was standing for, that somehow, which I didn't even imagine, even grew more. Um, and just talking to people that, you know, he affected. I think, uh, I think for me, it's a little bit different for the fact that, you know, I've been covering black movements and, and either crime or courts or, or racism to a point for the last few years. And not to say I've become desensitized to like how a lot, how a lot of these things feel upon reporting them. But, you know, after going to Charlotte last year, when Keith Scott got killed, there's not many more things than that being in that area that kind of really hits me hard. But what I will say is that, when I talked to Ra Ra Barber uh, a few weeks ago, and he recounted that, you know, his 11-year-olds were told that they should be burned a lot. You know what I mean? When he recounted that these white folks that he put his trust in immediately turned on him because they couldn't understand what he thought was just. You know, to see an entire system collapse upon you and people that you are accountable for, and to just hear how hurt he was, you know, that, that really shook me up because, you know, when you do this long enough, right, and you see how things kind of change around you and you kind of start to understand how these things work and you understand how justice is very quiet and long and limited for some and not for others, it, it, a lot of that will just build up and you're, it, it just hits you hard. You know what I mean? Like it hits you hard a lot of the times that you start to realize that black folks are not going to get the same treatment as white folks in this country. And you can fully see that in so many different systems in America. It kind of hits you hard that, you know, a dude who you actually kind of rocked with maybe in 2013 because he was black, because he had a fro, because he had tattoos, that he's now no longer able to play football because he decided he gave a damn about folks who looked like us. After a while, a lot of that, um, a lot of that builds up and, and it's very, very hard to deal with that. So 
uh, talking to Rara Barber definitely kind of gave me a moment of pause where I was just like, you know, shit, like this is, this is people really downplay how real this is. Mm-hmm. You know, 11 year olds are opening their local paper and there are white folks saying, we want to burn you alive. Like that's, that is as real as it can get on the game of football. Because somebody said that they had, that their difference of opinion matters more than like your own humanity. So it's tough, man. It's real tough. Yeah, and this was just over something that wasn't even very, I mean, not even very frequent. That wasn't very, that wasn't flagrant at all. He, he just, you're just taking a kneel for however long the anthem goes. And when you talk about people, they want you to align with their methods of protest and they don't have a clear defined notion of what that is. But you look back at sit-ins in the 60s, they said, no, you can't protest like that. And now we're in 2016, 2017, you kneel for the anthem. No, you can't protest like that. So where, what is the right order for people to protest in if literally sitting down and not saying anything for three minutes in a stadium filled with 70 to 80,000 people, if, if that's going too far, then, then what's the limit? And, you know, it, it's funny, the like these people, they will put you down for anything. And I, I thought that the quote from Candace Head, uh, the Mizzou alum who helped them, who helped with their protest strategies when they were having struggles. Uh, I thought that the quote that you guys put in there was really good. Uh, quote, Head understands the stakes Kaepernick faced with his protest. During the protests at Mizzou, her brother was the president of the student body and she was a prominent voice during the, the campus's struggles. Journalists attempting to discredit her, she said, dug through her family's financial records to paint her as a picture of privilege and not led struggle. And that's kind of some of the direct backlash that Kaepernick has faced where they say, you're rich, you're an NFL player, how can these problems actually affect you? And I just think that that's such a lazy, ignorant view to have of somebody that just because they have money means they can't go through any struggles. Or just even the assumption of what you actually have, right? Like, I have, I have to be somebody that went to an all-boys private Jesuit high school in Philadelphia. You know what I mean? And the assumption was that, you know, we must have had some money if we was finna go there. And it was like, nah, I just actually had to get the scholarship. I would have been in public school like everybody else. You know, so from those small moments to kind of the moments when you feel like, and Mike can, can detail this for you, you know, 100%, but like, when you feel like you're actually doing something that for once is unapologetic and you have no issue with it, and you're happy with what you did, and you know you might have been, you might have prayed about it, and everything, just to kind of come home from what you did, and anybody that could even try to support you wouldn't even understand. You know, Baldwin said a long time ago, you know, to to be to be black, to be a Negro, and to be conscious in America is to be in, in a fit of rage almost all the time, and that could be that 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 could never be so so true as to this last decade of, of political protest when it comes to the black body. If you've never been enraged about your own enlightenment about yourself and your skin and what you look like and what you do and what you want to say and you feel as though you're stifled up, you can look to the last seven or eight years and say, no, it's okay. You should write this thing. You should say this thing. You should use your your moment of protest or your piece of power to express how you feel. If that means you don't get a scholarship, so be it. If that means maybe you don't play in the NFL, so be it. If that means maybe that next 12 million on your contract is gone, so be it. Because what you stand for is something so powerful that we will never see that again. Yeah, and I mean, we we have Michael on the pod who went through his own anthem protest at Nebraska and got some pretty nasty backlash from it. So if you want to go into some details about, well, we know like what what the circumstances were that led you to do the anthem protest because you know. 
Colin Kaepernick kind of started this whole thing, but talk mm. about some of the backlash that you received from the anthem protest and how you think it may have affected your chances to get to the NFL. Um, I mean, it was this, I mean, same kind of thing that, you know, Ka- Kaepernick got, you know, uh, you know, people wishing, wishing bad things upon you, death, um, you know, things on your family and stuff like that. But like I said in the article, I, I understood, you know, uh, where I was, especially how people in Nebraska would, would react. Cause I've been, to, I've been to Western Nebraska and I mean, the feeling I got from there was about the same I get if I was if I felt like I was in the South. You know what I mean? And I've, I got a neighbor right outside my house right now who flies a Confederate flag in the back of his truck with the don't tread on me flag as well. And so, you know what I mean? It's, and it's kind of weird, you know, people uh, kind of got up, you know, they got upset because why do it here in Nebraska? You know what I mean? And Nebraska gets this um, this label as being good people, which there are a lot of great, great, nice people here, but it's time there is a lot of overt racism and when you have um sports in the center of it um as far as Nebraska football there's nothing there's nothing else any bigger anything close to that here um and they have a sense of like we were talking about earlier I think before we got on the podcast just a sense of ownership fans have I don't think the sense of entitlement is is higher than college football um you can get, see in any threat anybody talk about paying players how fans will come out and say well we pay for your scholarship by going to the games and paying for the tickets, buying the merchandise, stuff like that. So there's always, you know, people feel like they, um, you know, they own you or own what you do. Um, but like I said, I, I knew where I was. I wasn't ignorant to the fact that, you know, people have things to say, but it's just a different feeling when it's directed towards you, things are being said in that manner. And, you know, this is this is 2017. This, this is unfortunate, but, you know, things happen in public places and, you know, people are kind of a little bit more easier to find. So I think that's more of the nervous part, you know what I mean, just kind of being, place you don't know who your enemies are you know what i mean and uh who could really want um you know ill will for you or whatever and who's really uh willing to do that um and i had uh, met with actually an fbi agent but during the season because someone had sent a death threat over twitter um and their their cases uh already went through or whatever um but and talking about them they were going to come to come to nebraska and do something so it was it was it was crazy it was definitely was crazy for me um, definitely kind of being in, in that area and then still trying to play football and, and deal with that. But at the same time, I feel, I feel like he said, I feel like I was doing something good. I was doing something just so I wasn't bothered by it. That's what's up. And it's crazy that, or not crazy, but the funniest thing to me was when people came out this weekend after what happened in Charlottesville and they said, oh my God, is this really where we are in 2017? Is this America? Right. I'm like, yo, this is where we've always been. <laughs> like this, 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 like, obviously you don't see stuff like people running, people getting run over with cars every weekend, but yeah, like racist stuff happens right. every single day and that's just what it's like to be black in America. And I feel like that's another, another way to deflect, um, you know, the history of America. You know I mean? Keep, I mean, it's every year, 2012, you say, is this what's going on in America? 2013. I mean, it just goes on and on. It doesn't matter what year it is. It's, I can't believe this is America. I mean, this country was literally built on a man coming over here and, you know, creating a mass genocide of Native Americans to take over, you know what I mean, take over their land, take over what they had. So, mm-hmm. um, and again, like, it's, it's, and, it's, and that's the, it's the scary part with, with me is, this. Are, these are things that are well-known and well-written in, throughout history books and still throughout society you know what i mean outside of the context of 
uh, outside the context of those books that people are able to bend that truth or not, not maybe not bend it, but not even look at it and put it, present it to the table. It's kind of swept aside. And so, I mean, as you get further and further away from slavery, I mean, that's going to be a problem we're going to run into is in our history. I mean, it's even happening now, the, the way they're talking about slavery and the, the um, way it, it actually went in the history books now, it's not anywhere near to what it truly was and it's kind of watered down and as you get further and further along that's going to continue to happen so that's why it's always important like what Catherine's doing with the know your rights know who you are so like that that's why that's really important because you're not going to be able to learn that in, in school for too long i mean whatever they can to, to push whatever narrative they want yeah and harry was talking about earlier with with kaepernick and his donations that before, this was before we came on that he's not just you know right putting a check in the mail and sending off money to x campaign y campaign he's very meticulous with it where he's saying send this amount of dollars to this this amount of dollars to that so harry can you talk about a little bit more about how how involved Colin kaepernick actually was and it's not just him being away and just sending money off of these places yeah, it was funny because, um, you know, a lot of these organizations he donated to are grassroots organizations. I mean, obviously, he donated to Meals on Wheels. And, uh, you know, most of us have heard of heard of that particular organization. But, um, you know, these this was very strategic by him. Um, and, and he hit on very specific groups, whether it was uh, Communities United, United for Police Reform or Mothers Against Police Brutality or Silicon Valley Debug. Like, you know, these are very, very particular organizations and the money went to very specific uh, things within those organizations, like for uh, the communities United against police reform, like what they basically do is try to make sure that laws that are, you know, going through, you know, whatever, you know, town city may, they may be in, like they're trying to make sure that, you know, ones that are going to pass that are going to help, you know, citizens with police relations, uh, mothers against police brutality, uh, you know, that's that's pretty self-explanatory. But with what uh, Miss Flanagan was doing was uh, she has a, you know, a youth speak out, which is named after her son, Clinton R. Allen. And, um, you know, they try to basically get mothers that have been in you know similar situations, have had, you know, loved ones um, affected by police brutality in one spot. And they're able to basically share their experiences, um, network and, and kind of kind of form like a, uh, you know, family, like, you know, just be able to relate to somebody, have somebody that has mm-hmm. been through similar things as you and, and, and develop friendships that, you know, they're going to need throughout their lifetime. Um, and as far as like Silicon Valley debug, like, you know, Kaepernick was all up in there. Like he actually invited um, that organization to his first Know Your Rights camp. Um, I believe that was in October or November. And um, essentially, like what they did, like they had a bunch of like, you know, um, classes and things of that nature where, you know, they just educate young folks. And but what they did, too, was like Kaepernick was sitting in on these workshops and he wasn't just sitting there twirling his thumbs like he was actually like participating with the students and and also being interactive. Um, And he also like helped like do, do little things like setting up chairs for the event, you know. So it's it's not like he was he was just throwing the money um, and saying like here there it is I can say that I did this you know and uh, put a camera in front of his face like this man has you know he's laid out this protest a lot of people are like okay he's taking a knee but what else is he gonna do and you know I don't think a lot of people understood or or still some don't understand like how much like detail that he's put into this and I've even had a couple of people tweet me today and say like I honestly like have been strongly against this man but after reading this and seeing like what he's done and and how it affected people like Michael even um you know they're like I've I've changed my mind and I think you know that's if anything I think that's you know what Tyler and I would have liked to have accomplished um you know at least partially with this piece 
now this, I want to ask this to Tyler. Obviously, it's great that these people, or you know, some of the people that Harry was talking about, they've changed their mind after reading your piece, and that's fantastic. But does a part of you feel like, man, like it's always been, it's always been right here, it's always been in your face? Like, why does it take this for you to see it? I mean, because it's white people. Um, so the thing, the thing about whiteness a lot of times is that it has to be extremely transformational for them to even pique their interest, uh, at least on the, you know, on average. Um, it's cool that uh, one thing that kind of gets lost in this is that there, there is really no racial progressivism without a white ally, right? Like, there's, there's this thought that black people can kind of, you know, break off and still kind of resegregate and have this like black migrant group where we'll just be black and do our own thing and have this black wealth in a way that it's black wall street and just, that just don't make sense, um, you know what I mean? Because we cannot get those things. We wouldn't, wouldn't, we wouldn't have had those things historically if there wasn't somebody consciously or unconsciously that was not black that said, oh, I'm really down with X, Y, or Z, right? So the, Candace Head kind of you know, spoke about this briefly um, during her interview for this part is that these are the stakes that it takes for white America to get involved, to care, to, to not only care, but use their positions of power as white people and then give a shit, you know what I mean? Like actively and proactively decide that they're gonna give a shit about people that don't look like them and that it takes this. And that's inherently the problem is that somebody had to kneel and then multiple people had to kneel week after week after week. And the protest wasn't that you saw them on your TV, it was that you read them in your newspaper the next day. And these black black folks and these women were on televisions and, and on cameras and screens and texts saying exactly what we needed them to say. That's the real protest. And that people like Michael Rose Ivy or like Nigel Hayes and, or, or you know, Keanu Kill and others have to reach a point where they're getting such hatred that that's when we understand it. You and know? sometimes that's still not enough for some people, which is 100%. terrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it t- so t- take Mike's example, right? Like the, the, the weekend after Northwestern where him and, and his teammates knelt, there are death threats. There are Nebraskans saying they should be lynched. People saying they should be thrown into the ocean. Radio stations going off. Major CEOs across the state going off. Uh, uh, you know, university officials. The Board of Regents. The yeah. Board of Regents going off. You know, we did an entire investigation in October to find out that the Board of Regents was still shit talking, essentially, uh, after that happened. So you have this young man who comes to a podium, which he doesn't even have to do at this point, and reads what he's been dealt with for the last 72 hours. And that's not enough. You know what I mean? Like, at, at what point do, you, do white people have to visualize black pain enough to say, okay, this is too much? So I, it, while, it's glad, while, while I'm glad that, you know, maybe some white folks got touched and, you know, changed their opinions upon reading this piece and seeing the timeline and the months of work that went into this, I care more that we told these black and brown folks stories of pain because they're so hidden and undertold consistently through our media. So I care more about that. I care more that, you know, Michael Rose Ivy and Nigel Hayes and others had outlets to actually speak about what happened a year ago. That somebody was able to actually go to them and say, hey, man, let's just actually talk about this. Because they didn't really have that ge- like in a genuine sense for most places. So I care more about them and that they're good and their message is heard than I do about white people finally a year later trying to understand and grapple what's going on. The, in the, the notion of like we we don't believe you or we need more proof that this is actually happening and then you give them numbers of you know there are you know the black people make up 
almost half of the entire prison population, despite making up only 13% of the entire United States population. Sometimes that's not enough. You know, you see pictures, you see videos of, you know, Eric Garner and uh, other guys getting killed by the police, and that's not enough. And then what the, the crazy thing to me was with Kaepernick, when you get back to when he sent food over to Somalia, people were saying, well, why don't you send that food over to the U.S.? And I'm like, do you not see what he's doing with Meals for Wheels, uh, so-and-so, exec- uh, et cetera? Like, what's good enough for you guys? And then, I mean, I've honestly just come to the, to the belief that nothing will ever be good enough, and we're just kind of going to be stuck in this place of racial pain and racial superiority for at least the rest of my life. And you know, it, it's a daunting thing to think about and to come to realization with but it's the reality of being a black person in america and it it just hurts that it takes things like charlottesville to happen for you for white people to see you know how much pain we're in yeah for sure i think um i think too i think i don't know if it's people are coming to realization of the pain and seeing what was going, I think it's almost more of a guilty conscience, and that some white people they won't want to be associated with this. It's not like they're they're going to speak out on the racism, but it's like the fact that people are, are saying this is how all white people think or act. And you've got social media that's telling you that no, this isn't just the South that feels this way. You know, you got videos of racism going on in California, in Delaware, in Maine, and all these other places. So you can't just say this is. The confet- this is the South and how the South feels. And it's the same, I mean, it's the same uh, kind of feeling that, you know, back when in Baldwin's, like his day, you know, um, talking about uh, the liberals, I mean, the Northern liberals, um, how much is, how much they, it was almost as worse than being in the South because you didn't know who was, you know, your enemy. And that's the thing with those people not going out in, in their cleanse mask, which was, you know, beneficial to be able to recognize who they were is that, you can recognize those people, and those people are doctors, lawyers, people that w- are within your community, and you can actually see who those people are. So that's why I was saying earlier before the podcast is that boldness, I think, could actually end up hurting a lot of these nationalist groups uh, with the way social media works and how quickly things move nowadays. And like I said, I think it's more just people don't want to be associated with it. And I don't think, you know, people getting fired is more they don't ne- maybe they don't necessarily agree with it. Maybe they don't, but it's they just don't want to be associated with it. Yeah, Al was uh, kind of popular in 2013 in this era as Black Lives Matter sprang back up for uh, saying that we must defeat James Crow Jr. Esquire. Um, this feeling of Jim Crow versus James Crow, which Michael kind of is, is touching on, is that the, the, the fixation by white America to assume that parts of the country is racist and not all of the country is racist is inherently flawed. No, like every county right. in America is racist. And that goes from the Jim Crow South, where they're very bold in letting you know how much they don't rock with you, to the James Crow metropolitan mid-Atlantic version of America and then, and, you know, in, in D.C. and New York and Philly and Boston, especially, you know, places like that, where it's like these are dudes in checkered, you know, what I mean, like like Vineyard Vine shirts who might smile at you mm. in your face on a college campus, but at the same time, when it comes to you taking a stand against protests, will be the same people who will spit on that fire that you're setting. So I think we can't be, um, you know, I, th- I think we can't be blind to seeing that holy white folks have an issue when we take stands like this, not just parts of them. Part of America doesn't have an issue. America just does have an issue. Yeah, because the, also, the idea also uh, for them is that 
Um, and it's also kind of like what Davos Winnie said uh, when Kaepernick first started his protest is, and it's like they they think, you know, black people in America have it good enough and and good enough is not equality. And for us to try to get equality, that's a threat to them. And they don't like that. Yeah. I, I, what I thought was interesting today was uh, I was listening to Bamani Jones show on ESPN the right time. And with it was in the first few minutes of the show. And he was talking about how, yo, like it's 2017. These people are walking around without masks on like. Like, how empowered do you have to feel to go out and do some stuff and think that you aren't going to get any ramifications from from it in a social media area, a social media era? You're walking around without masks on, with Confederate flags, with Nazis uh, flags. It, it's just, it, it's not that racism has never existed and we're just now hitting it in 2017, but this new emboldened face of, of racism is... It's kind of frightening, and I, and I think we need people who have the influence, like Colin Kaepernick or Malcolm Jenkins or Marshawn Lynch or Michael Bennett or Michael Rose Ivy or uh, all those guys who have protested the anthem in a peaceful way and have eloquently stated their thoughts about what can improve with this country. We need more people like that, but at the same time, we need white voices to say that. So, you know when you have all these black voices saying this is what we're going through uh the people who aren't experiencing those things always come with a side of doubt uh a side of cynicism and it's just it's really hard to keep fighting that battle i'm I'm, i like I, i i honestly wondered like what is the next step from here if somebody or, or not even somebody, literally millionaires like Colin Kaepernick and Malcolm Jenkins and those NFL players that I stated, if that's not enough to get people to care about this, I, don't, I really don't even know what could possibly be next. And mind you, we've seen that this disruption to the normalcy of, of American life, this, this, this faux oasis, right, that are, that are these Saturdays and Sundays where we kick our feet up and say, you know, our politics won't intersect our sports. We think our sports is apolitical, which has never been true. It's breaking yeah, down right. bit by bit, right? Like it's breaking down bit by bit by bit. You see people like at Dickinson State, what what, what what President Thomas Mitchell is doing, where he's seeing black boys on his fields protest and saying, "Okay, let's say we don't know why you're doing this, or there are people who want to know why you're doing this, or we want to have genuine conversation that might get a little, you know, riotous at a point. We should make a forum in our town, our majority white town." To have these conversations and in a way, you know, it is appeasing to white people and their fear and like their questions, but there is no, there's going to be no progress in black life and no betterment in black life if white people don't start to understand how, what oppression actually is. Until we start to break down these terms and feelings and put them in white people's faces, they're not going to make our lives easier. And the onus has always been on black and brown folks to express these things about black and brown issues. However, we have to come to a middle ground and we, we're not able to do that right now. And so I think what they've done at Dickinson State and other places is a good way to kind of put this in your face. And if you have questions, to always be able to answer them. We've seen this in the communities in, in Minneapolis and Kansas, where the Washington Post has written stories on Muslim communities there that have been there since the 60s that are now using basically spokespeople for the religion at different collegiate forums. Who are just basically talking mm. hours and then letting white people ask their questions as, as ignorant as they may be. And so... This progress is something that is piecemeal. It's going to come bit by bit by bit. And like, there's never going to be a moment in the next few decades where black people are going to be like, oh my God, that's it. Right yep. there. I got the handy with my gas. We good. It's over. You know what I mean? Like, to, it's uh, 
And to spin off of what Tyler said too, like one one point that Ju Hun Kang, uh, who who was the director for the Communities United for Police Reform, that she brought up, you know, she she mentioned, you know, it's it's not even federally mandated to count the number of police killings that go on in the United States, but because of social media, because of technology, like now we're able to put it in the faces of people who don't believe that this is going on because they just, you know, before they just didn't see it. Um, so that's, that's another way where it's like, okay, like, you know, it's, it's still going to take 10, 20, 30, 40, how many ever years to, to get to wherever we want to be. But at least now, like we're able to put it in people's faces immediately and be like, look, like, this is not bullshit. Like, this is a thing that is happening to us. It's a thing that's happened to us for hundreds of years. Like, you know, we got it. We got to change it. And not even technology to the point, the point of just like, we're at a moment where journalism has never been as important as right now. These political protests have never been as important as right now in the modern era because white folks don't believe a lot of different shit. And it takes like, for example, I've been reporting on, on these different social movements regard, like surrounding Kaepernick in a way for almost a year. And we're at a point a year later where we're doing a big project like this. And white people are still over and over and over again saying, wow, after every single article, I can't believe this is a thing. Or that's in Buffalo, Charlotte, L.A., you know what I mean, in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, pick a place. Mm-hmm. We've documented it for a year, and, and people are still coming to the point where they're just like, I can't believe this is going on. I can't believe this is happening. This doesn't happen where I live. This must not be true. And it's like when you pop the bubble of the status quo, you see the white fragility that comes out when you've disrupted their space. And that's kind of when you say, okay, either they're going to agree and see this for what it is, or we got to start right back the fuck over again. Right. And what I think, and, and, and what I think is interesting, or not interesting, but infuriating in the case of Kaepernick is people are saying, you know, you need to decide, are you going to be an activist or a quarterback? And I, I think that what your article did in a really eloquent, beautiful way was showed that you can do both at the same time and it's 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 demanding it's you know time consuming but if you really care about it and are passionate about it you can do both and it, it's really frustrating for for us to see people say he needs to pick one or the other why does it have to be one or the other he he's already shown that he can do both uh we know from a football standpoint he's more than qualified to be uh, at least a backup in the NFL. I think he could be a starter. And shout out Stephen White. Shout out Stephen White. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fellow SB Nationer. Uh, and we already heard from Steve Bashotti, who kind of spilled the beans that it's not about football because we have two of the fo- two of the smartest football minds in the league in uh, John Harbaugh and Ozzie Newsom who say, "Hey, we kind of need this guy on our team." And Bashotti saying, "Let me talk about the people who control the money up top." with the season ticket holders, advertisement people, stuff like that. So we know it's not about football talent. It's about how can we make white people feel better about themselves and you know, bringing an issue like police brutality to the forefront, that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And and that's really the main reason why why Kaepernick doesn't have a job. And I, I think one of the, one of the uh, closing paragraphs that you guys had was, was perfect. And it said, quote, the fact that nearly a year after Kaepernick first took a knee, Folks feel close to Kaepernick's protest shows its power. It's a sign that kneeling worked and that conversations about racial inequality are bubbling to the surface. Like, that's perfect. And while the conversations of racial inequality are, are coming to the surface and Kaepernick has done a lot of good, you still, you still just got to figure out a way to make people care about it. 
Yeah, man. It's a uh, you know, it's a it's a slow burn. It's gonna it's gonna take time. It's it's been taking time, you know. And, uh, <laughs> it's only been a few hundred it, years now. It's it's only been a few hundred years. You know, we uh, we might have a few hundred more to go. Damn it! But I mean, it, it that's that's what it's great to see. You know, um, you know, just people, you know, going for it, making making trying to make a change. You know. Um, I know Colin Kaepernick has, you know, inspired me. Um, I'm sure, you know, he's inspired everybody else here, clearly. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good step in the right direction. Hey, bro, it's not even 10 Popeyes in D.C. We still got, like, a whole lot of racial progress. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, at least, at least let me get a Popeyes on my block. I'm going to reparations. Shit, we can, we can figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing, man, is that we are still – I think the, I, the best analogy I can put it in is that black people came to this country. I'm sorry. When black people were told we had to come to this country, we started off in the basement of the house. We were told we couldn't come out of that basement. And if we came up them steps, then that was a problem. In so many, hundred year, in so many hundreds of years, we found our ways off the floor of the basement, up the steps, and into the, to the dining room table. Now, we still sit on the floor, sure. but we can see the table. It took but so many years just to get into the same room where we could see the table and see what we eat and see what reward looks like, right? So eventually, mm-hmm. it's not going to take 20 years. It's probably not going to take 40 years. It's going to take decades and generations. We'll sit at the same table as these white folks and look them in the face, and they will have to unabashedly talk about racism, about what makes us hurt, about what they've done to people that look like us for literal generations. And only then will we get to the point where we say, okay, maybe we can be equal. And even then, we'll be still dealing with a lot of inequalities that we still have right now. I mean, if right now is the moment where in mass, the the conservative vehicle that is football says, we've now made somewhat of a space for you to do this, and we've only been playing this game for 100 plus years, I wonder what happens another 50 from now. I wonder what next, what's next for black football players and, and black athletes who are using their voices to cause political and substantive change. I wonder what we look like even 15 years from now as this moment is really just spiraling off right now. And that's the most important thing is that right now, white people don't know what the hell to do with themselves because their safe spaces are being disrupted. Whenever they come around to thinking that it's okay, that it's not normal that these things happen, well, shit. Maybe it's my black on the football team. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank guys. I, I cannot thank you guys enough for coming on today. Uh, yeah, I, I I thought this was great. This is one of the best episodes that we've had. Uh, yeah. Before I let you guys go, you guys wrap it up then. <laughs> wrap it up then. Wrap it up. Harry, Tyler, up. You, you guys, anything you're working on that you want to let the people know about that's coming up soon, or are you guys taking a break oh, after this? Hell, I ain't letting y'all know shit about what I'm doing. <laughs> you see it when you see it. Yeah, yeah I'm, we, we keep it on the low, but but damn it, I, I need to take a breath for a minute. All right, I feel you. <laughs> Michael, what what you what you got coming up next in your life? Oh, man, just been working out, man, waiting on a call. I got a couple calls this week, so hopefully somebody get me into their camp. I need a job. J-O-B. J-O-B. That's what's up. We're all rooting for you. Uh, thanks for coming on again, guys. Uh, this is going to conclude episode 35 of Seven the Edge. We'll be back episode 36 later in the week with another SB Nationer, Stephen Godfrey, to preview the college football season. Thanks for rocking with us so far, and we'll be back later this week.